This is episode 148. I am your host, Gail M. Davis, and this is Design Perspectives. Welcome to the Design Perspectives podcast. I am your host, Gail Davis. I will talk all things design from expectation to reality, from what to expect when working with designers as well as the trades. And from time to time, current events will seep their way into the conversation. In the meantime, sit back, relax, and listen. Sana Baker is amazing. That's all I have to say. She is a textile designer. She is a ghost textile designer. If you have a question about product, I mean about textiles, which is product, she's the person you need to speak with. When I say she is a wealth of information, she went to school for this. She has worked at Kravitz. She has worked um, at Schumacher and she knows all things textiles. I cannot even begin to tell you that I have witnessed designers put fabric on different pieces, especially upholstery weight, and just watch it disintegrate. It is important for you to understand where you are using the fabrics and what the in use can be really used for. And some fabrics need to be back. That's another conversation you need to have with your vendor. But without further ado, please listen in. Um, Sana is just amazing. She's a wealth of information and she will be back. But please go follow her and definitely sign up for her, um, for the, the textile eye um, catalog that she sends out quarterly. And it's super important that she highlights different designers. She's working with Bad Guild now, or yes, working with them now, I believe. Go check her out. She's amazing. Without further ado, Sana Baker. Amazing. Hey, Sana, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to finally speak to someone that is like textile savvy and that this is what you do. But before we get any further, please tell the people who you are and what you do. Oh, Gail, it's so fun to, to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Um, yes, yeah, so I am a textile designer for many years um, and I do textile design for home furnishings. I'm uh, a bit of a ghost designer, so I work for uh, as a consultant for different companies, putting together uh, collections for them, doing design and sourcing. And then about four years ago, I um, also started to create a publication called The Textile Eye, which is all home furnishings, high-end textiles, inspiration, and beauty from different markets around the world. Wow, that's really wonderful. Um, how did you how did you end up here? Like, how did you get here? Because everyone goes to school for something. What made you say textiles is the deal for me? Well, I'll tell you. Um, I went to Berkeley High School, and I went to Berkeley High School in the late eighties. And I took I don't know if they gave you one of these aptitude tests, but I took an aptitude test when I was about maybe sixteen or seventeen. And the results of the aptitude test told me that I should be a mortician. Ooh. And I was so depressed about how my life, you know, here I was like this Berkeley teenager going to cafes and hanging out and trying to be artistic and cool. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to have to be a mortician and my life is going to be terrible. <laughs> so 
not long after that, I was sitting in the back of my French class, doodling on my paper, which is kind of what I did during class instead of paying as much attention as I was supposed to. And there was a kid that sat next to me, and he looked over at my paper, and he said, oh, that pattern is really cool. You should put it on a T-shirt or something. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, it occurred to me that somebody comes up with the pattern. So what you see on wrapping paper, on women's fashion, on curtains, somebody has to come up with that. So I thought, well, if I could figure out how to make patterns for a living, then I won't have to be a mortician. (laughs) And it took me a while, but I figured it out. It was before Google. So I ended up figuring out that I could go to FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, and I did a two-year associate's program in textile design. And then I started working for an American mill. So we had uh, design studios in Manhattan, and then the mill was in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And from there, it just it just expanded. I, I went on to work at Schumacher. Then I moved back to California. I was in Los Angeles for a while, and I worked for Barbara Berry for many years. And then um, maybe about... about 10 years ago, I've kind of started my consulting and uh, have been doing that ever since. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so quite a few questions because you're right. Someone, if you do a design, you can put it on, on, you know, a T-shirt or fabric or whatever. Mm -hmm. What have you learned, especially with textiles? Because, all right, wait, let me just stop for a second. What have you learned with learning textiles and working with designers do you do you find yourself having to educate designers on what ber- what works best best with each piece because upholstery weight is different than you know drapery weight than any other weight and do you walk them through that when you have these com- when you know if you yeah. have these conversations absolutely i mean i think in a certain way I came from such a textile background. Um, It wasn't until I was at Schumacher and I had a wonderful boss there named Thomas Burak, and he came from an interior design background. And he actually taught me a ton about how textiles should be applied to fabrics, um, what's appropriate for different treatments. Um, Things have changed since then because there's much more performance fabric. We don't use silk on on curtains as much. but uh, there really are a lot of things to keep in mind. Um, generally, the designers that I work with to create their collections, um, to be honest, it's usually all upholstery fabric. We, I do help some people with drapery, mm-hmm. uh, but the focus is always really on either upholstery or multi-purpose fabrics, which are fabrics that can do double duty. They're light enough to be used for drapery, but they're hefty enough to go on a piece of furniture. Um, but what I don't get into as much is once the, once the end customer, not the end not and the user, client, right. but, uh-huh. the, but the interior designer makes a decision about that textile, how they actually go about applying it, whether they order stain repellent on it or knit backing or other treatments, whether they use it, you know, up the roll or decide to railroad it, how tightly it's pulled, whether it's welted, all those things happen on the interior design level. Mm -hmm. And 
I feel like there's actually a bit of a disconnect between the textile world and the interior design world about, you know, best practices for how to treat different fabrics. So let's talk about the multi-purpose fabric, because something you said, you're like, there's upholstery and there's multi-fabric. But when you say multi-fabric, I automatically, in my design head, go upholstery, right? Mm -hmm. But you said it can mm -hmm. be used for drapery or whatever. What is the difference between the two? And I know, like you explained to me before, one has to be backed and explain why. Oh, well, so with, with okay, so I'll start with multi-purpose. So multi-purpose <laughs> can be a lot of different things. If you think of a medium weight or a slightly heavy weight linen print, mm -hmm. that's something that works beautifully as a drapery or it works as an upholstery or a pillow fabric. Um, there are some fabrics that have a lighter uh, weight that are completely only okay for drapery. Mm -hmm. You can you can tell, of course, if you look through it and you see that it's sheer, it's sheer. You're never going to upholster anything with that. Right. But if you if you look at the back and the front of the fabric and you kind of feel it and move it around and just see how does it behave, um, that's going to give you some impression of how it's going to behave when you upholster it. And like if you take the fabric and you pull it over the corner of the table really tightly, mm -hmm. you fold it and you look at how does that seam look? Is there something showing through? You know, if it's a print, is it causing uh, distortion in the pattern? Um, that might make you think twice about how you want to use it. It's probably okay on a rounded piece, right? but on a piece with a really sharp corner, you want to be careful. Um, and then in terms of backing, there are a couple different reasons to, to use a backing on a fabric. One is seam slippage. Mm -hmm. And one easy, there are sort of tests that you can do without referring to the technical tests that come from the supplier. Mm -hmm. If you cut the fabric and then you insert a pencil into it, like a quarter inch from the seam and pull it. Mm -hmm. And if it frays very easily, then you know you might have a seam slippage problem. So it's the same, you know, you might think of a pair of trousers after a few years and if the, if the seam starts to pull, right. the exact same thing will happen possibly on a piece of furniture if it's not tightly woven. So that would be one reason to back. Sometimes you back things because they're just a little too lightweight and you want body. Sometimes embroideries are backed to keep them from fraying. Um, in general, a high-quality, tightly woven and heavy upholstery fabric won't require backing. Mm -hmm. But if it's something that's a little more mid-weight or something very special, it might want a backing. Okay. There's like a flurry of questions going on in my head. <laughs> I'm just like, there's so much I want to say. There's so much I want to ask. Okay. What is the, is it brand name, Perennials and Sunbrella? What is the difference? Because here's the other thing. When the thing that stores sell to, you know, to America, I'll say, or to people is they're like, oh, well, you could get the perennial fabric, you know, and this way, if you spill anything on it, the red one, all you have to do is soap and water and it comes up. But also, again, I'm just like, how much cleaning do you think you do? I mean, are you how much wine are you going to spill for one? Then don't invite those people back. But two, I've noticed that with that fabric, it will pill. Is that normal? So with indoor outdoor fabric, um, most like Sunbrella is a great example. That is made of solution dyed acrylic. Okay. Most solution dyed acrylic does have a tendency to pill. It has the highest 
uh, light resistance, so it won't fade, but it does have a tendency to pill over time. Um, I think one of the one of the things that it's difficult for me to explain to people is that there's almost no such thing as a perfect fabric. Oh, that's fair. Um, in, in my opinion, the closest thing to a perfect fabric is something that uses natural fibers, right? So it might be linen or wool or silk because those things have a beautiful hand and, you know, they're, they're naturally biodegradable. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we, what we're looking for right now is performance, and performance has taken the design world by storm. Mm-hmm. Um, so performance can mean different things in different circumstances. It's not a technical term that actually carries that much weight. Mm-hmm. It, can, it used to mean that it was high abrasion and high rub. Mm-hmm. Um, even a fabric that gets high abrasion tests might not hold up well to pilling. So okay. there are two separate tests that, that can be done. Um, and then what you do get with the solution dyed acrylics and also with the polyolefins and some of the different um, yarns that, you know, I hate to tell you, are patrol- like sort of petroleum-based and kind of plastic really? in their core, uh-huh. is that um, you can bleach clean them. So you can easily scrub it. You can use different, you know, dabbing and bleaching in all different ways to, to clean up. Um, personally, I prefer to not spill red wine on my, <laughs> my sofa, right. like you're saying. Um, but it, but there are circumstances where, you know, if it's a young family or people with, with dogs or other things, and it's a family room or a kitchen adjacent room or certainly outdoor, um, it makes a lot of sense to use those textiles. Um, but I, I, I prefer to sort of keep those fabrics in the places where you have to have high light, you know, um, uh, tolerance, or you need to have the, the clean ability and then stay with the natural fibers and more traditional fibers for the other parts of the house. Okay. Um, let's talk about you being a ghost designer. Cause we know about ghost writers, but I never knew there were ghost designers. I just thought that, you know, a designer works with a fabric house and they, you know, collaborate together and the designer does her sketches or whatever and say, this is what I would like. And how does that work? How, how does the ghost designer work? How does it work with you working with designers? That's what I'm trying to say. Sure. So, um, I mean, I can start talking with, with explaining this a little bit. When I was at Barbara Berry's, um, she had a staff of designers where she had interior designers that worked for her, product designers, people that did furniture design, and she had me as her textile and surface designer. So she had someone on staff that could interface with whoever the licensor was, Kravit or Tefinkian, to to kind of make sure that what was in her mind was Mm -hmm. being translated correctly by the partner. Um, And many designers don't have that type of staff. Um, Even today, you know, even large design firms don't always have a textile designer on staff. Mm-hmm. So um, I can step in to help. It's it's almost like I I go through a process with my clients where I help them to kind of identify what's missing from the market, what is their personal voice, what does the collection that they want to create 
tell? What story does that tell? Um, and then we really get into things like pattern and um, pricing and colorways so that when the designer goes and presents their concept to a prospective licensing partner, they're far enough along so that the, the licensing partner is they get a great idea of what the collection is going to be mm-hmm. and they know that there's a there there. You know, it's a lot of people can say, oh, I want to have a fabric line and I want some stripes and I want some patterns and I want some planes. But what if you really drill down, what is that? Who's your customer? What are your palettes going to be? What story are you telling? And having all that ready to go is important, especially in this day and age where, you know, getting a, a great licensing deal is not as easy as it used to be because it's a much more crowded field. Okay, let's talk about the licensing. How how do is the licensing? Can I do it on my own and and like connect with someone like you when we create it, or do I have to go through a fabric house like Kravit or Schumacher and be like, hey, I would love to do a line. Is there some way we can work that out? How does how does a designer approach that, or how is it done nowadays? complicated question. Um, <laughs> a great question. I think that there are different ways in which it happens. Um, definitely, if you're looking for a licensed line, you need to have that product partner. So whether it's Schumacher, Fabricut, Kravit, or a smaller company, uh, there's a lot of collaborations going on right now. The same thing is true in rugs and in lighting and all different areas. So basically, you would be acting as a guest designer. Um the, those relationships come about in a number of different ways. It might be that you really resonate with a particular brand and you have an idea for something that you think they should do. You can go and just pitch them directly, absolutely. Um, sometimes there are uh, uh, special consultants who put deals together and they shop you around to different people that they think are the right choices. They might put together a whole portfolio of, oh, you know, you should do furniture with this person and lighting with that person. And and they put those deals together. Um, I generally don't do the approaching. I'm there to help with the creative side and help put together a presentation or also help with product development. Some of my clients are doing textile lines as licensed collections. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of my clients, like an example is Jun Ho here in San Francisco. He has his own fabric collection. So he's buying the fabric, warehousing the fabric, sampling the fabric, servicing all those customers. So he's really his own company. And I step in with him to help create the collections and help source the collections. So there are a lot of different ways that I work. Um, but with licensing, it's, it, it is kind of its own um, its own specialty area. And I guess, you know, one way to look at it might just really be, like I always advise people if you want to do a collection, do your homework, see what's out there, spend time pulling things, have Pinterest boards, have bags full of, you know, your favorite fabrics that you've worked with over the years or little swatches. Maybe you have, um, Oh, you know, like even a scrap of a, a childhood blanket or a pillow that belonged to your grandmother or a quilt that's meaningful in your family or a textile that you purchased when you were on a trip. You know, if you start to pull all that stuff together, 
that's the material that will turn into your collection. And kind of then also seeing what's out in the world is also really important. And that's in a way where the textile eye comes in. Wow. Do you have a favorite um, textile, a favorite fabric? Oh my goodness. I have, <laughs> there are a lot, but I, there is one that comes to mind. And I mean, there's, so of the fabrics that I've worked on, um, there's a fabric that I worked on for Barbara, uh, which is a, an Eppingley and it's a, that's a kind of a cut and loop velvet. And mm-hmm. it's a large scale pattern that has like a whirlpool on it. And it's, just one of my favorite fabrics. I have it on pill- a pillow in my house, and I don't have that many things that I worked on in my house because, you know, if you surround yourself with things that you've done, then it's, it's like you don't relax. Um, but that particular pattern is one that I really love, and that was uh, a cravat fabric, and, and it was woven at a mill in Belgium that I have been lucky enough to visit since, and, and they still do things in a very old-fashioned way, and it's just all very hands-on. So, that's one that's very near and dear to me. That's something you just said. You said it was woven in Belgium. Okay. Mm-hmm. Which country has the, uh-huh. has the best fabric? Well, every country, there's a lot of different countries that have different specialties. Okay. So India is amazing for embroidery. Okay. Um, they're really top of the line. Uh, Belgium is fabulous for linen fabrics, planes and textures, and also some uh, diff- some Eppingley velvet. Mm-hmm. They also do wonderful um, outdoor if you're open to polyolefin as opposed to solution-dyed acrylic. Um, then Italy is really a powerhouse. That's probably the, the country that I source from the most. They have a really wide range of textiles that they do. They're great in print. They're great in uh, woven textures and jacquards. Mm-hmm. Uh, for wool, then you go to, to the uh, United Kingdom and um, some great prints coming out of the UK. And we do have some good fabrics in America. The textile industry is not as strong as it used to be here in terms of manufacturing. Mm-hmm. But there are some wonderful specialty mills that do, that do beautiful um, cut velvets and other things. And one country that is a huge power, oh, Turkey, I should mention, is good for um, certain uh, velvets and textures. Uh, A lot of um, polyesters come out of Turkey, but also some really nice linens are coming out of Turkey. Mm -hmm. I don't source from China, but China is obviously a powerhouse and has done, you know, a huge job of... uh, everything from linen to velvet to printing to um, the textures and all different levels of quality come out of China. So you got to know what you're looking at when you're buying Chinese goods. Wow. Okay. Um, let's talk, because we're about to wrap up, let's talk about, which is one of my topics that I love to bring in, appropriation. <laughs> what have you learned in this industry and how they appropriate um designs from cultures and then try to pass it off like it's uh what's what what was the word it wasn't global before now they're saying global it used to be oh ethnic prints i don't mm-hmm. know why ethnic just... prints for sure so the design industry has changed enormously it used to be absolutely accepted to 
I uh, designs from around the globe and just basically copy them. And I think that Yves Saint Laurent is kind of a wonderful example of somebody that we look up to and who was a brilliant designer, but who did a fair amount of appropriation in his designs where he would be inspired by Indian things or uh, Chinese things and just put together a collection that was very clearly based on um, the cultures appropriated right is how we see it now uh inspiration and things have changed a lot i think that there is a growing awareness for sure that you can't just you know take an ecot and copy it or take a a a kuba cloth and copy it Mm -hmm. um but there's still a long way to go and i think one of the reasons that um it's a it's a complex it can be a very complex issue because if you look back I think like Chinese hand-painted wallpaper is a really good example. Mm -hmm. It's been made for centuries and it's been created for centuries as an export item. So it's being painted by Chinese artisans, but to the the taste of European buyers. So what in that case, you know, who's appropriating what, it can be very complicated. Um, I think that the... The important things that we have to keep in mind are always, always cite your sources. So if you are inspired by uh, patterning from an Aboriginal, you know, wall painting, Mm -hmm. make sure that you make that clear. Another thing that I find is very important is to make sure that you as the designer Mm -hmm. are the filter in a way so that and when I say filter, it's almost like the opposite of that, that the inspiration is coming through you and then you are creating something new based on that inspiration. Um, so you might look at something and say, Oh, I love this design. You're not just going to take a picture of it and then put it in repeat and <laughs> put it on a pillow. You're going to see it. You're going to compare it with other things. What is it that I like about this and start fresh and then it's to me that's inspiration okay and and i think you know i do want to just touch a little bit on the textile eye because that's my baby um we we get into uh we show a lot of different design from around the world so like the report that we just finished is milan and there are a ton of amazing things in this report and they're all put together by theme we do color um, and even with this report, the same way that it is not okay to take uh, a mud cloth design or, you know, uh, uh, a sacred design from Peru and just put it on yoga pants, it's right. also not okay to see a design that another person or another company is doing and copy it. So copying, whether it's done in an appropriation context or whether it's done in a knockoff context are things that we really do have to police ourselves better on and have better um, habits around because the textile industry is, uh, you know, we people are moving fast, they have deadlines, they see something they like, they, they get into hot water um, <laughs> yes. and they really don't take the time to think about how to how to be respectful of the material that they're inspired by. Wow. Well, this has been a lot, and I'm so grateful to have you 
um, on today. And I, please, I would love for you to come back because I want to, you know, especially go through the textile eye and I'm going to put that in the show notes, but you have just been a wealth of information. And when Melissa mentioned you, I was, I jumped at it. I was like, yes, I want to interview her. I want to, because I love textiles, but it's also like, you, you need to understand. So before we go, Please tell the gorgeous people where they can find you, and it will be in the show notes as well. What is your Instagram and what is your website? Marvelous. So my Instagram is the underscore textile underscore I. The website is the textile I dot com. And there is a link on my on the textile I website to my portfolio website. So if uh, any of your listeners are interested in hearing more about the ghost designer aspect, then there's a link on the site to sonabaker.com. Oh my God. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate this. And ladies and gentlemen, she will be back. (laughs) Oh, wonderful. Thank you so much, Gail. It was a pleasure. Same here. Thank you for listening to the Design Perspectives podcast. As always, I'm your host, Gail M. Davis. I really appreciate you listening. Please don't forget to rate me on iTunes. It is super important. It will help people to find where we are located. And the Design Perspectives podcast is also available on Design Network Platform. Thank you so much. Enjoy your day.